It's not every day that I can say my guest has gone from tanks to tonic. His French 75s now come only in a glass, and he has never looked back. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we're inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Incessantly curious and globally mobile, Charles Gibb, CEO of Fever Tree North America, is always ready for a challenge. If you're planning a startup in a foreign country, then he's the one to call. He's with us today to show us all how it's done. I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. And I can't wait to hear your story. I just want you to know I'm drinking Fever Tree at this moment. It is the aromatic tonic water. And not only do I love its color, but I love its taste by itself. Don't tell any spirit companies. <laughs> lady, mm-hmm. Extraordinary taste, obviously. What can I tell you? Now, you are such a big man on the campus here. Um, you are CEO of Fever Tree in North America, mm-hmm. and you have done and seen a lot of things before this. And I would love to start at the beginning. Oh, my goodness. All right. It's not going to, don't worry, we're not going to be here for days, but mm-hmm. I know that you started off life. Um, well, actually, I don't know where you started off life. So let why don't I ask you, where did you start off life? Well, I always describe myself as a child of the world because I my, my father was in the army. Uh, he served in the British Army. And so I grew up all over the world. And I grew up in, you know, yes, in the UK. And I went to school in the UK. But every time I went, to, went, went, went home on holiday, I went to Germany or Belgium or a different house somewhere. And my father was there and not there because he was away serving in, you know, whether it was Cyprus or Northern Ireland or um, somewhere strange. And I had the pleasure of living in, you know, Singapore and, and, and America at one stage. Um, and, and so I, I sort of grew up all over the world and I've always embraced sort of global mobility and, and kind of the global community that we live in. Um, I think as a result of that, it was instilled in me at a very early age. Well, because your father was in the service, did you always know that you were going to head there as well? No, I didn't. I mean, he he was, um, you know, he, he never pushed me in that direction, but it was something that, that I wanted to do. It was something that I was determined to do. I obviously held him in very high regard and with, you know, the deepest amount of respect. And I really admired what, what he did and, and, and his service to our country. So uh, it was something that I wanted to do. And it was a very natural evolution, I think, for me at the time. And right after school, you went into Sandhurst, right? Yeah, yeah, I went, I, I, um, I probably didn't have the qualifications to get to university, nor the patience, frankly, to do um, to do the you know the amount of study. I was a restless young man, and I wanted to get out and um, you know attack the world, as it were, and and, and grasp it. So I, I chose not to go to university um, and and went to Sandhurst um, and did the officer training there, and then and then completed that, and then joined my regiment. You know, at the age of whatever it was, eighteen, nineteen years old. So. You know, a young, young man suddenly thrust into a position of leadership and command of, you know, in those days about, you know, 30 soldiers um, and, and spent, you know, six phenomenal years, uh, tremendous adventures, you know, serving uh, in the British Army. You know, it's funny. You were in the Royal Scots, right? Correct. Yes. So, of course, I thought you were going to say, oh, my father was Scottish and I grew up drinking whiskey and that's what led me there. But how did you find, was there any a Scottish, is there any Scottish in you that led you to join the Royal Scots? I mean, 100%, my father, my, my father served in the Royal Scots. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Scotsman by you know, blood, cut me open, I bleed, I bleed Scottish. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have a, I suppose, a neutral British accent because I grew up all over the world, um, ended up going to school in England. Uh, and, you know, I think... I think, you know, as you evolve, uh, and particularly in a sort of global business, you know, I've, I've actually, I always describe myself as one of the majority of Scots um, in the fact that I, that I read a great statistic once that there are 65 million people in the world who classify themselves as being Scottish, but only four and a half or five million actually live in Scotland. Uh-huh. I class myself in the majority of Scots um, who, who, who chose to live elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so the Royal Scots was something that you knew you were going to go into, but did you think you were going to be a career 
you know, in the service for your whole career? Or were you thinking this was only a short term thing until I then jump off and do something else? No, I mean, it was it was when I joined, it was an intention to have a, you know, a full career in the army. And what I discovered was I moved through, you know, the first three ranks, as it were, very, very quickly. I was a second lieutenant, lieutenant captain. I was a captain, you know, at the age of 23. Um, and suddenly I looked ahead and I, the army has, has a strange, you know, um, hierarchy where you can accelerate very quickly in your first sort of seven or eight years. And then suddenly they slow you down for the next 10 years. And whilst I'd done three steps in, say, five or six years, the next two steps, you know, the rules didn't permit me to take the next two steps for another you know, nine, ten years. And I think that coupled with the fact that there was a lot of kind of defense cuts, there was a lot of, you know, reduction in military spending meant that I was running around the woods an awful lot shouting bang, you know, as opposed to firing a gun, which sounded a bit, a bit silly or waving a rattle to simulate machine gun fire. And I found myself playing a lot of soccer, um, as you guys call it, football. Um, and, you know, I play football two afternoons a week. And I thought, just a second, there's something, you know, I should be doing more with my life than this. And of course, so I decided to, um, I decided to leave and decide to resign and, and resign my commission. And bizarrely, nine months after I left the army, and I'd seen, you know, I'd seen some active service in, in Northern Ireland. That was the main, the, the, the main place that you went in those days in the British army. Um, and of course, bizarrely, nine months after I left, you know, Saddam uh, Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait uh, and, and my battalion was one of the first, you know, across the start line in the first Gulf War. And many of my friends who stay, stayed in served in two Gulf Wars and have ended up in endless tours of you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and all over the shop. So the world was a very different place because I was I was in the army during the Cold War period and I was there right at the end of the Cold War. You know, I always remember being on on exercise in in northwestern Germany, and we saw a Trabant, um, you know, which which basically had come from East Germany, and that was the day that the wall came down, and it was an extraordinary day because these suddenly you saw you know not hundreds, but you saw dribs and drabs of Eastern European cars sort of drifting across into the West, and it was very strange, uh, a very strange time to be alive, and a very strange time to be living in Germany. And I guess for someone who has trained so long to be, I guess, at war, it must have been quite frustrating for you to not be able to have that experience. You know, some of me, of you probably is like, thank God I'm safe. You know, mm -hmm. it didn't happen. But part of you probably felt unfulfilled. I don't know. Is that true? For not going. Um yeah, I think, oh, no, undoubtedly so. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's the same as anybody. You know, if you train endlessly to be something, then you want to test yourself in those, in those areas. You know, um, you know, a nurse who never, who, who never has to deal with, with a, you know, an open wound is, is, is kind of like going, oh, I, I did all this nursing training, but I didn't actually get to, you know, dress a wound or something or, a, you know, um, you know, uh, a, a right, a surgeon, right. Endlessly to stop, you know, people robbing banks, you know, never gets the chance to stop somebody robbing a bank. Right, it, right it, of course. It, there is that, you know, when, when you've trained very hard for something, when the training is that intense, um, yeah, you, 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 you always want to put yourself to the test. Of course. Now, there you are, you know, you resigned your commission and you are out in the real world, you know, without a... a, a you know, a babysitter or anything to fall back on, really. Um, where did you even think of starting? Did you um, have an idea? No, um, absolutely none. I was 25, 26 years old. I was a young, you know, um, young, young man. So I went skiing for, for, for six months. Um, which much to the much to the hour of my father, who, who kind of was like, when are you going to get a proper job? Um, but what it did was it gave me time and it gave me a break and it gave me a chance to think. And what I what I landed on is that I didn't want to be in, you know, in banking or in insurance. I didn't want to spend my life looking at a computer screen. Um, I wanted to be in a business that that, if you like, played to what I felt my skills were, which were those of sort of leadership, um, yeah, leadership management and working with people. And so I I kind of immediately sought out careers in business industry where. I would have the opportunity to lead teams 
um, and lead groups of people because I, I, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I love doing. Um, I'm also passionate about kind of consumer behavior or people's behavior. Consumers is what I would call it now, but in those days, like the way people behave. Um, and I think the final thing was I wanted to do something that I, I kind of felt was tangible. So I couldn't, and something that I could be passionate about and care about. Um, you know, and, and much as, you know, makes my whites, you know, laundry detergent may be a fantastic business. It just doesn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. So I kind of automatically gravitated, I think, to some of life's, maybe life's, life's vices um, and started my career in tobacco, uh, which gives, I think, the best training in the world. And certainly in those days gave the best training that you could get in any industry. And then from there, kind of um, spent time at Gallagher, which is a British tobacco company, doing kind of export markets for them. And then very quickly transitioned into the alcohol business, um, you know, after a couple of years. And, and really, that's where I spent what 25 years of my career um, in the alcoholic beverage. Yes, business. that was probably a smart shift, given how the tobacco, tobacco has think, changed. Yeah, I think I was the only person who actually gave up smoking whilst working for a tobacco company. Um, there you go. I, I, I was sitting in a meeting room and it, the thing was, the air was thick with smoke as it would be in those days. And there'd be cigarettes everywhere down the table and you could take your light ones, your medium ones, your super strong ones. And then you could take these ones at the end that you just looked at and just went, Oof, those are sort of instant death ones. We probably won't touch those ones. And and I um, I remember sitting in this room, I remember walking out of the room, and I actually felt ill and I hadn't smoked a single cigarette during that, that meeting. But it was almost like a form of, you know, religion or sort of communion almost, that you'd walk into a meeting room and the first thing everybody would do is grab a cigarette, light up, and you'd sit in a room with 10 or 15 people all smoking, you know, for three or four hours. And yeah. the headaches you would get, but the way you would feel was just, anyway, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I never smoked again, never smoked again and never would. And yet, yeah. and yet when I was in the army, I smoked you know, all the time, because I was young, I was fit, and we probably didn't understand the kind of real perils of doing so. Right, of course, it was totally a different time. Mm. So when, what what was your first, uh, if you remember, your first job in the drinks industry? So my first job um, was, was, was at Bacardi Rum, when Bacardi was a single brand company. So literally it was, it hadn't bought, the Grey Gooses or the Bombays or any of these these brands. I was based in London. I was a European marketing manager. Um, I'd grown up sort of speaking French and German at school. I was quite good at languages. Um, So I did their sort of, I was in their European marketing team and I'd travel into Europe um, and and support their local markets there. And it was all just a big adventure, you know, because for a young man, you know, it was a great adventure. And I was learning about, you know, how distribution networks operate, how brands are marketed, um, phenomenal kind of mentors and, and, and um, guides at Bacardi. And Bacardi was a great, you know, it still is a great company, but it was a great company to work for because being family owned, um, you know, they they didn't worry about this year's profits. They worried about making sure the brand was in, you know, the best shape it could be to give on to the next generation. So it was very long, you know, they always thought much longer term, I felt. And they always they always cared about what would happen in five years' time more than in five minutes' time. Um, and did you did you feel that the marketing position was was it? Once you once you got a taste of marketing, did you think, okay, I'm I now can do this. This is what I feel like my training before has led me to I, I feel comfortable in you know being in marketing because there's there's lots of aspects of the drinks industry that you could have fallen yeah. into but marketing well I, I think you know it was very quick to me it would be marketing and sales and, uh-huh. and I think that marketing and sales you know commercial management um, requires the two to work you know brilliantly together and, and people talk about this all the time um, you know but but you know marketing to me is about understanding how people behave and therefore and, and how you can change their behavior through your actions through um, through marketing the brand through presenting the brand through talking about the brand in a very specific way that appeals to people and so I think that our whole idea of behavioral change is really important but none of that matters if you haven't got a great 
sales organization who's out there executing that. And particularly in the drinks industry where you've got this unique environment where you can, you know, you can engage with your consumers as they're using your product. You know, back to my, you know, soap powder analogy. Nobody comes into your kitchen and says, how's that soap powder doing? Is it doing well for you? Do, do you like it? No. And you think, no, I just throw it in and the clothes come out clean. So please leave me alone and get out of my, get out of my laundry room. Mm -hmm. In a bar, you can go up to people and talk and people are keen to talk about what they like. They love it. And so there's this wonderful live aspect to the drinks industry where you really do, you really get to meet the people that drink your brand and, and you can't have any misconceptions about it because you can walk into a place and go, well, no, those are the people drinking it. That's what they look like. And how do I, that, that's, how, that's what they look like. That's how they behave. That's what interests them. That's why they're there. And you suddenly realize that actually, you know, they're in a bar because they want to be with their friend or because they want to watch a game on TV or because they're celebrating something or this or that or the other. They're not in there to drink your bread. So you've got to find your way into their conversation. I think that's that's part of the fun of being in the alcohol business. That is super, super interesting. Um, and so back to Bacardi, when you were at Bacardi mm -hmm. and getting your feet wet with this, um, you know, did you think you would stay there forever or did you feel, okay, this is a step onto the next thing? I, you know, I'm, or, you know, did, was it just a logical transition every time you, for the next move, I guess? Well, um, Bacardi bought Martini and Rossi at the end of my time there. And um, as a part of that process, and this, this I think is uh, sort of shows you how much the world has changed. But they bought Martini and Rossi and they wanted to relocate all of us to Amsterdam. Um, and there was opportunities for me in Amsterdam or maybe in Bermuda. Um, and I thought, Bermuda, well, that sounds interesting and fun. And then I realized that people never leave Bermuda when they get there. So I thought, well, I'm just saying, I'm a bit too young to go to an island and sort of retire at the age of whatever I was, you know, late 20s at this point. Um, so, so, and Amsterdam just didn't do it for me, I will say. Um, maybe because I'd been there too often in the army. It, it, it wasn't a city I particularly fancied living in. Um, and and so, bizarrely, Bacardi, you know, uh, made me redundant. And the industry was such in those days that they said, well, look, listen, we feel very sorry that you're being made redundant. And they made one or two introductions for me, one of which led to me joining um, United Distillers, which, of course, you know, today is Diageo. And I, I kind of joined United Distillers and I left, you know, Diageo and didn't stop working for the same company. It just merged and merged and merged and acquired and changed names endlessly. And, um, yeah. So that was very, that was very, time yeah. to be. It was a fascinating that, time to be there, yeah. And that was super friendly of them to say. I mean, it well, would that, never happen today. It would never happen today. Uh, I think it was the kind of, you know, the drinks business was kind of considered to be a, um, you know, sort of gentlemanly business. And, you know, um, people you know, took care. We took care of each other, as it were. And it was, it, it was, it, I mean, it's not the sort of thing. And I'm sure, I'm sure many industries were the same, you know, um, you know. I, oh, I'm, I'm sure. I know, still feel that a little, look, the little, I still feel that a little bit about the drinks industry. But so Diageo, was that when they immediately sent you to Poland? Yeah, I mean, I think I worked for them about, for about two weeks and then and then somebody said to me, you were in the army? I said, yes. And they said, do you want to go to Poland? I said, where's the link? Yeah, one plus one. And, and anyway, they said, well, there's a job going in Poland. We're starting, you know, a company there um, and we think it'd be a great opportunity for you. So I went to Poland in November um, it was miserable. It was wet. It was cold. It was. It was. There was nothing appealing about it whatsoever. Um, and I came back and I accepted the job. Uh, because, <laughs> no, only because I thought, "Wow, what an adventure! Yeah, what an amazing opportunity! What an amazing time to go to a country that is literally." I mean, it was what it was. I mean, 1989, December 1989. You know, so really, was, just after the Berlin Wall fell. No, no, no. So that was when the wall came down. Right. And I went there in 1990, end of 92, early 93. But still pretty, uh, so pretty very, soon after. Very, yeah, very early on. Um, 
and you know, I mean, God alive, living in living in Warsaw in those days, you know, you would you would buy what was in the shops. You never wrote a shopping list because you know you would go to the shops and there just wouldn't be stuff. And so, what were you selling? What were what what did they want you to take out there? Number one, what were they drinking, and what were you trying to get them to drink? Well, what they were drinking was vodka, 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 and more vodka. Um, and you know, Poland. I mean, Poland. Uh, I've got a long history with Poland, obviously. Right. Um, but Poland was the, you know, is the birthplace of vodka, um, you know, several hundred years before the Russians. And, you know, Poles would drink vodka. And vodka in those days was controlled by the states. The state government controlled vodka and they controlled the sale of it at every level. They produced it themselves at these Polmosses, which stands for Polish Monopoly of Spirits. So it was a, it, you know, they, they literally, Polmos and then the town name, they had all these distilleries all the way over the country. They controlled the brand names, um, so they 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 had all the brands. And then in those days, believe it or not, they would publish the vodka prices in the newspaper when they wanted to do a price increase. So there were just three pages of vodka pricing, and you could not breach if you were a retailer or a wholesaler, you could not breach the pricing mechanism that was set by by the government. So the government made all the money on vodka. And it was sold in milk crates, so literally plastic crates. And people would walk in and they'd buy vodka by the half litre. And the half litre was considered one night's consumption. So people would walk in, buy their bottle of vodka, consume it that night. Or and then the come back day. the next day. And come back the next day. And, you know, it was, I mean, I think there was a time in Poland when there were 40, when I was there, there was 40 million people living in the country consuming 40 million cases of vodka aye, aye. a year. Now, you know, by any standards, that's, that's a lot of vodka. Um, so I was there, believe it or not, to change their drinking habits and to get them to drink whiskey and gin. That was going to be my guess, was whiskey. At least yeah, a Johnny Walker. But, uh, Johnny Walker. And, and, was, was there, and you said gin as well, but back to the Johnny Walker, was there any history of them drinking whiskey at all? Oh, yes. No, no. I mean, the Poles during, um, the Poles are phenomenal people. Um, they really are, because during the whole communist era, they were the most innovative, the most, um, you know, um, they had all these routes to get product into the country and stuff. You know, they, they had a very healthy black market that allowed them to, to you know, thrive and, and to live and to survive during com communism. Um, and so, you know, Johnny Walker would get in there through various different means, um, through some duty-free shops, through this, through that, through some channels, obviously up through the Baltic. Um, and there was a brand presence there. But our job was obviously to sort of get more and more and more people drink, drinking it, um, albeit it was very, very, very expensive for, for any locals to, to drink. So it was already at a sort of super premium pricing, even well, for Johnny Walker Red Label. Well, how, how was that for you and your kind of growth as a business person? Would people take to you? Would they, you know, did they want to know you? Were well, yeah. I, think, I think what that taught me was the most important thing is, is give, the, give the brand a personality. Um, um, live the brand yourself, which is really important. I'll talk a bit about that. And, you know, um, tell the story. People were obsessed telling the story. And so literally I would do tours of Poland. I was, I was wearing a kilt probably three, four nights a week, a week, you know, normally I, I wear kilts for weddings, funerals, and sort of, you know, big celebration parties, balls or whatever, like maybe five times a year, 10 times a year max. I was wearing the kilt literally three or four nights a week as we would go around the country educating people, um, standing up in front of group, you know, in front of groups of people and and telling the story of Johnny Walker. And then we'd bring up Piper in there and play the bagpipes. We'd okay. this, we would, you know, we would just bring we would just give the brand a real personality and give it real energy. And and I lived the brand myself, you know, endlessly. Um, and I'd sit down with these big, you know, distributors and wholesalers, and they'd want me to drink vodka, and I'd want them to try whiskey, and we would kind of educate each other on on the nuances of of our preferred drinks, and you know, what what we found, and obviously, Johnny Walker and, and whiskey is a very was a very aspirational because it was a Western product, a very aspirational product for people to get um, 
to engage with, and you know, phenomenally, um, phenomenally interesting to watch people kind of, you know, as this country was growing, as this country was maturing, as this country was sort of reawakening and reopening, and it was a real reopening and reawakening of Poland, um, and you know. The, the, sort of coming out from the shackles of communism. They, they really embraced things that were new, that were vibrant, new to them, that were vibrant, that were energetic. Um, and, I mean, my God, we had some fun. Oh, I'm sure you uh, must have been incredible. How long were you there? I was there for three, just two, three and a bit years, um, mm-hmm. living in Warsaw. I mean, you know, there was, the, there was all that side of it, and then there was the really tough side of it, which was... It's a very hard country to live in. It's very harsh. The winters are extremely cold. You know, it's no, it's no um, surprise that, um, you know, so many Poles settled in Chicago um, because <laughs> the weather, but the weather's very sim- sim- right. similar. It's extremely cold in the winter, lovely in the summer, extremely cold in the winter, and the winter would drag on and on and on. I think there was one year where for something like five months, it never got above freezing for one minute of one day. And, and it, it just wore you down and the cloud cover because you're on the plains, this flat plain. And, uh, you know, the, the cloud cover would sit at about three or 400 feet, you know, above the ground and it would just be gray. And it, it, it was kind of exhausting. And, and, you know, obviously personal security was an issue because you're a Westerner operating in a, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, Eastern European market, which was still, you know, huge wealth, obviously huge wealth gap right. between, and, you know, a, a British expatriate living there and, and, and any of the locals. Um, and, and so it was, no, it was, it was a tough it was a lot of fun. It was hugely energizing, but tremendously exhausting at the same time. No, no wonder you went right to Australia. Well, I um, had an Australian girlfriend, and, and so my boss came and said, so what would you like to do? I said, I'd love her. I need a sunshine tour. Yeah. And I've got an Australian girlfriend, so how about it? And about, about a month later, he came to me and said, there's an opening for you in Melbourne. So I was shipped off, like any good Brit, off to Australia. I said, what have I done wrong? And they said, yeah, on this side, you've actually done all right. So I went and down so, to and loved it. I mean, I mean. And yeah. I guess as you're pro, pro, uh, gradually progressing up in the company, what in, obviously they already know about whiskey in Australia, but did you have to, was there a different brand that they wanted you to promote or that the Australians weren't drinking as much? Well, because you, you go to Australia and it's a totally different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in Australia um, with Diageo, I was in Melbourne, and then I went to Perth, and then I came back to Sid- Sydney. But, you know, the Aussies love their Bundy rum, um, Bundaberg rum. Uh, and somebody always told me when, when I first moved there, said, so, look, five nights on the Bundy and you'll, you know, you'll be converted for life. I think I made it through about three. I kept waking up with these horrific hangovers because it was Bundy and Coke. And so you just wake up with these massive sugar hangovers, like, oh, I can't drink that stuff. And so Bundaberg and I never quite hit it off, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, but, but there was a time, you know, there was obviously the huge whiskey market, big gin market, um, even more exciting today, actually, the gin market in Australia mm-hmm. um, and, you know, vodka, you know, et cetera. But yeah, Bundy was the, Bundy was the newcomer for me. And it was a, Again, a fascinating brand to work on because my last job in Australia was was all about um, innovation. Um, so we started doing Bundaberg rum and cola on tap in kegs in Queensland, which is the home of Bundy rum. And so you'd walk into a bar and you'd get a Bundy and cola on tap, mm-hmm. um, you know, literally pulled like yeah, a yeah. out of a um, out of a keg. And people loved it. I mean, it was it was phenomenal. And it was, again, a simple insight that you know the coldest you can get a drink with ice in a glass is you know three four degrees centigrade but beer coming out of the tap was coming out of you know two degrees mm-hmm. maybe it's like five degrees in a glass and, and two, but it, the difference was was huge and therefore the refreshment cue was was massively different and so as soon as you put it on tap you could ice the taps make sure it was super cold 
So what happens when it's super cold is people go, oh, that's so refreshing. I want um, another. Correct. Yes, I want another. So that must have been really exciting for you to start innovating as well as marketing, also start innovating in your role. 100%. 100%. Yeah. We loved it. And, and, you know, we did all sorts of fun projects down there. And we were there at the sort of early days of the RTD boom. Um, and loads of people, you know, will, will you know, I, I just remember the, the madness of, of that time um, and the craziness of RTDs in, in Australia. And it's probably still one of the markets in the world where RTD is, is you know, considered almost a normal form of consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas everywhere else, it's kind of, it, it's come in and out of, of fashion over, over the years and, and has, struggled the- to, has struggled to sustain a strong positioning. And very much the fashion right at this moment. But, very much so, yeah. Um, so it had to be a really great role to bring you back from Australia um, well- with, with Belvedere. Well, no. So, so um, I f- first of all, I, I kind of I left. Uh, I left yeah, Diageo, and then I went and did a little bit of work in a wine business for a while, which was fun. It was quite sort of innovative. Um, and sadly, um, we were about to kick off a business here in the U.S., and then nine eleven happened, and a contract that we were going to sign never got signed, and the wine that was designated Uh from the US never got put into a bottle. So we sort of had to fold that. And then I joined, and then I heard about this company, Moa Hennessy, starting in Australia, and I said, that sounds like a bit of fun. Um, And I stalked, uh, literally stalked the guy who I found out who was going to be the CEO, and I stalked him. Um, which was much more difficult in those days because you couldn't sort of LinkedIn him. Right, I was going to say no LinkedIn. <laughs> no, no LinkedIn. You had to go. You had to go and really stalk him, like oh. some of the letters and stuff like that, um, and you know insist that he met you and, and try and find his phone number and all the rest of it. And um, I met I met this extraordinary man, a chap called Rob Remnant, who was uh, sent by Moat Hennessy from from Asia down to Australia to start the company there. Um, and on the first day we met, I think we both knew that we would be, you know, lifelong friends. And we, we are. We are lifelong friends. We hit it off um, from day one. We were on the same wavelength um, when it came to vision for the company, how we wanted to operate, how we wanted to behave, everything. We just just one of those unique moments in life where you find somebody who's so in tune with you and who you are and what you want to do. So we started, you know, together we started Mert Hennessy Australia from scratch. He was the boss. I was running the sales organization. Um, he, I'd been living in Australia for nine years. He was the newcomer to Australia. Um, he knew all about Mert Hennessy. I knew nothing about Mert Hennessy. And so we had this wonderful yin and yang and, and, and just got on like a house on fire. And we just both had the same ethos of sort of work hard, play hard, and, and, and have a lot of fun do, doing it. And, and genuinely, that's what we did. And we took the business to, to levels that were never imagined prior to us starting the business. Um, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was a business that was doing well, but it really, really, really grew after we took control of it. And, you know, we recruited um, an extraordinary team of people you know, many of whom have gone on to very senior levels, you know, in the Hennessy. And that was something that we were both really, really proud of, you know, was the fact that, my God, look, you know, um, one of the guys that I recruited is now actually the managing director of Australia. And one of the, you know, one of the girls went off and was running Chandon in Australia. And one of the, you know, somebody else was off here. The, another one of the girls we we, we, um, we recruited at the start now runs, um, you know, all of the, on-trade business for Mert Hennessy in the UK. Um, so, you know, we, we had some real kind of, wow, massive success stories when it came to the people. And that was something we were both kind of really hung our hats on and we're really proud of. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, was there one specific, specific spirit that they that you wanted to promote there or was it just the whole, the whole gamut well, of everything? For, for us, it was champagnes first. You know, um, so, you know, Moëtte Chandon, Veuve Clicquot, Dom Perignon, um, those three in particular, Rina coming in more and more towards the end. Um, when it came to spirits, you know, um, or sorry, the next most important thing was, was Chandon because we had the local winery, the locals, and that was a huge business for us. Mm. And then, of course, you know, with the ownership of Kate Mintel and Cloudy Bay, 
Um, we had those brands, which which were really important and big brands in the Australian market and both very kind of iconic you know, in that part of the world. Um, so those were a big focus of the portfolio. And Spirits was was a much smaller focus um, for us, but, you know, beautiful portfolio with, with Hennessy, obviously, as the lead. Nice. And, you know, heavy focus on that in the Asian market in particular. Uh, within within Australia, and then you know brands like Belvedere, you know, were in, integrated during that time, mm-hmm. uh, along with um, yeah, along with Glenmorangie, you know. So so they were all coming on board, but they were new bit new bits of business. But our business was really champagnes and wines first and foremost. So what drew you to the role of 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 at Belvedere? So well, another another new brand that you could conquer. No, it was it was more the I mean. After three years of doing that, you know, Rob, my boss, obviously he, by this point, no, he, he, he said, you know, I want to find a new opportunity for you, Charles. And um, I then had the pleasure of meeting, I don't know, probably one of my other great mentors in, in, in life, a um, chap called James Cockrum, who was running Moat Hennessy Europe at the time. And I went into Moat Hennessy Europe, working in the kind of head office there. Um, helping James with strategy, new business development. We were doing a joint, venture, uh, a joint venture at that time in Russia. We were doing setting up companies across Eastern Europe. Um, we were trying to c- sort of consolidate our sales and marketing efforts um, across the European market. So I sort of sat in James's office um, and and helped him with sort of I would say you know transnational projects or pan-European projects. Uh, or pan-European initiatives. And it was, a again, f- f- you know, an amazing team of people that James was assembling because James, again, was one of these people that, that believed in get the best talent, surround myself with the best talent I possibly can. Um, and I don't need to be the expert in everything. I can, I can be the, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the conductor of the orchestra, but I want to have the best people in all these different roles. And again, you know, another character who's very, you know, influential in my life and my career because he, you know, if, if I look at the people on his executive team at the time, again, they've ended up running Moetis Chandon, they've ended up running Europe, they've ended up running, um, you know, part of Asia, they've ended up running, uh, you know, big parts of the business. You know, one of them was the CFO for Mark Jacobs for years, years and years and years. So they've all gone on, and including myself. And then, and then the Belvedere opportunity came along. And um, um, you know, Christophe Navarre, who was running uh, Hennessy at the time, you know, came to me and said, "Charles, I need you to run Belvedere." And I said, "Oh, um, wow!" And off I went. And, and again, back to was, Poland. Well, back to Poland, but it was bizarre because the office was based in London. Oh. And my wife was brilliant because my wife looked at me and she said, "Charles, just a second. You've got a boss in Paris. You've got a distillery in Poland." And in those days, 80% of the business was being done in America or whatever it was, a very high percentage. Why are we living in London? And I was like, because I was literally traveling between those three places, Paris, Poland, and London. Mm-hmm. So after about four months, I took a proposal to Christophe. And that's what I love about Moa Hennessy was I took a proposal and said, we need to relocate the headquarters. We need to be, um, you know, we, we, and he said, oh, you will come to Paris. I said, actually, the idea was we'd move to New York to be close to the market, close uh-huh. to the consumer. And he went make it happen. Mm-hmm. So three months later, I'm shutting the London office, moving it from London to New York. And we moved to New York in early 2009 in the middle of the financial crisis and all the rest of it. So, and, you know, have lived here obviously ever since, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it's one of those things. And I look back at my life and my career, one of the things I've, I worked out um, is that I love doing kind of startup businesses. I love doing things which are new. So, you know, starting up the business in Poland, I just loved that energy and passion. I loved the startup experience in Australia. Um, you know, when in Europe, I was loving all the kind of new initiatives and starting up new ways of doing things across Europe. And then, and then when I came to Belvedere, it was like, well, how do I, how do I, do this? And the first thing that sort of came into my mind, probably naturally, was, well, I need to reset and so i treated it as a startup so Mm -hmm. part of that i think was changing the location changing the headquarters changing the way that we were thinking and breaking some of the sort of previous paradigms and and you know i suppose it's no surprise i found myself starting fever trees business in north america after that 
because it's something I enjoy doing. I love the energy of a startup. Yes, it must be, especially with the brands that are already, you know, around that, that have been established. You know, Fever Tree is is quite established here in the UK. Mm. Um, you know, there's not one bar that you go to that doesn't have Fever Tree. I am terribly allergic to aspartame. So I would always seek it. I can't have a PIMS cup, say, mm. at a pub because they use every single mixer that is like store-bought or I'm not going to name any names, but most yeah. of them are made with sparatame. They don't say it on the label, but you ask, yeah. oh, yes, this, this, this. Yeah. So, of course, I started to drink Fever Tree, you know, because I had to. You know, it was, thank goodness, one of the ones, if not the only one, that was made with natural flavors, natural everything. So, you know, it's been in my life for a long time. Now, I think of it, you know, I don't think of it really as quintessentially English, but it is, has been here for a while, the owners, et cetera, or the, the founders. And um, so how did you feel that you could introduce it to the uh, U.S. market? Well, I mean, well, um, I'll, st I'll go back a step to go. Okay. But so, so Fever has obviously been around since 2005. And it first came to the U.S. in 2007. So I didn't bring the brand to the U.S. The brand was already here, but it was here through a third-party agent mm -hmm. um, who was putting it into a distribution network but wasn't marketing the brand. You know, he was selling cases into the marketplace but wasn't taking the care and attention that a brand owner would take of their own brand if you were based here. So he, he, you know, he did a great job um, you know, to get the brand established. But as with any agent business, you know, it, once you get to a certain size, you're better off running the business yourself. Of and and I first came across Fever Tree bizarrely. Um, again, you know, all the great things in my life happened because of my wife. But we were in a we were in a um, well, we'd been drinking Fever Tree in London in 2006, 2007, and we were at a Christmas party at a friend's house, and they had Fever Tree. And my wife goes, "Oh, you got Fever Tree?" Blah blah blah, and she starts chatting away. Chat Fever Tree, Fever Tree. And this chap says, well, actually, one of the founders is over there. So my wife being, my wife's Australian, so she's got no inhibitions whatsoever. She walks straight over to this chap, says, you, Tim, is that your name? Yes. Um, this tonic water is absolutely delicious. It's all we buy. It's all we all drink. We don't drink anything else. We absolutely adore it. And, you know, Tim and his wife and, and myself and, and, and Tamara, we just hit it off very, very quickly. We got on, you know, we get on very, very well as we got on very, very well as friends. And then as I moved into the Belvedere job, I said, my God, this, this, this is such good product. It is so to your point, you know, it's got none of the artificial garbage that most things mm -hmm. have got in them. It's got, you know, no high fructose corn syrup. And frankly, you know, you make all these amazing spirits um, and then people destroy them with right. awful mixes. And so I mandated when I was running Belvedere Vodka that, that, that under no circumstances, providing Fever Tree was in the market, were we to do any events anywhere in the world if Fever Tree was not present? Because Fabulous. it makes your drink taste better right. and it made Belvedere Vodka taste better. And it, made, it, it makes everything taste a lot better. Right. Because, because you know, and, and I always, I, I use this analogy a lot, but... You know, if you think about a master distiller or you think about, you know, um, yeah, a spirit creator, they've chosen, they've carefully selected their grains. They've distilled them to the point of perfection. Mm. They've aged them in, in barrels that have been hand-selected and they age them for a specific number of years. They crack them open, they blend them, they bottle them, they, they take all the care and attention in the world. They put them in a beautiful bottle. And then 10 seconds before you get your, your drink, somebody injects it with a whole load of garbage and, and you know, high fructose concept, artificial ingredients, nothing natural. And the spirit gets completely destroyed. And what you're doing when you do that is you're destroying the life's work of this master distiller. Uh, you know, and that's it. That's what you're doing. And, and I always say, you, know, you wouldn't put tomato ketchup on Wagyu beef. You wouldn't put garbage mayonnaise on your lobster. Yeah. Right. Well, that's that's why their, you know, their logo or their saying is so great that if three quarters of your drink 
is going to be a mixer and make it the best mixer possible. You know, you can't get, you know, it's, that's simple. It's, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. And, and Hmm. what's interesting is, you know, obviously it starts with working with premium spirits, but the reality is over time, you know, we, we find more and more and more people say to us, Oh my God, you know, I drink X brand and it may not be the, top shelf, but it may be the, a medium or bottom shelf brand, but I only drink it with fever tree because I want to make my drink taste better. And so whether it's the best spirit or the worst spirit, the reality is it makes it taste better and it delivers a better drinking experience for the consumer. And, and that is the genius of fever tree. That's the genius of, of Charles and Tim, the two founders. It's the genius of, of the way they've done it because they've approached it in the same manner as a spirits company does. You know, we're a mix of brands. We're a mixer brand. Absolutely, one or two people may consume our products, but we're a mixer brand. We're designed to be mixed with spirits. We're designed to make alcoholic drinks taste better. And, and that's what gives us the ability to talk about our ingredient hunting, our sourcing, um, you know, and, and talk about the brand in the same way a spirit brand talks about its sourcing and its you know, raw ingredients and its distillation process and all the rest of it. Because there's there's... There's an art form to the creativity of fever tree. Absolutely. Now, in your role in the U.S., um, have you found that you have introduced it to people who had never heard of it oh, yeah. um, throughout the U.S.? I mean, and and how did you do it? How how what were what are the some of the things that you did or, or have done or still doing? I think. I mean, you know, the the, the answer is look. The, the brand had a had a strong loyal following of. Um, Mainly kind of people in the know, I would say, you know, people who really, you know, care about or, you know, had traveled, let's say, to the UK or seen the brand somewhere or certainly obviously a big, a big favorite amongst the bartending community, etc. Um, and what we've been doing is really trying to 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 expand the sort of consumer base. And you do that first and foremost through kind of experiential, you know, and I'm talking about pre-COVID, um, you know, of course, you know, you know, but bringing the consumer experience to life. So, you know, we would be present at Jackson, you know, Jackson Hole Food and Wine and Pebble Beach Food and Wine and South Beach, where you get the, the real chance to sort of talk to, you know, tastemakers and talk to people who care about ingredients, you know, you know, people love, you know, to talk about the ingredients they use in their cooking and their, you know, creating the most delicious meals. And so these people, are fascinated by the fever tree story and they love it they love you know the you know the lower calorie aspect they love the non-high fructose corn syrup aspect they love the different ingredients you know and and so finding ways to to physically go and talk to people and again i go back to my kind of early days in poland it's like i spent a lot of time on the road myself in a kilt wandering around telling the johnny walker story well, I've got a team of people, but I'm still doing a lot of it as well. And we fly around the country and we turn up at these events and we stand behind things and we talk to people and we tell them the story of the brand and we bring it to life as a person. And it comes from the heart about how much we love it and why we love it and why this is an amazing opportunity for them to upgrade their drinking experience. Um, so I think that's been really, really, really key, uh, obviously engaging the bar trade. Um, and then, you know, started look at bigger initiatives we opened the fever tree porch in bryant park you know bryant park being right at that kind of epicenter of new york you know a few blocks from grand central between grand central and times square and then the kind of golden triangle with times square you know grand central empire state building so it's a absolute you know mixing pot of locals because you've got HSBC, you've got, you know, Salesforce, you've got Bank of America, you've got Campari, you've got big, big, big companies who've all got their offices in and around that space who love to go on the grass in the summer and have a drink and have lunch and relax. You've got events, you've got the skating in the park in the winter, you've got the winter market that pops up there. And we, you know, we have a bar there. And that bar, you know, would, would serve 100,000 fever tree cocktails, we would reckon, in a normal year. And we get seen by 13 million people. Um, and again, they get to see the brand, feel the brand, experience the brand. And again, we're able to look at different drinks trends. We can, we can see what's selling. 
because we can put different things on it. Oh, wow. And, and that's why what I love about you, as, as I said, I'm drinking the aromatic um, tonic water, is that you're always innovating. Mm. And there's always something yeah. um, new on the horizon and interesting and delicious. And uh, that is, is great for someone who both either loves to mix it or to have it by itself. Well, you know, you know? And I think, I mean, again, you know, what, obviously one of, the, one of the keys was elevating every drink, but secondly is in, innovating. And this whole platform of innovation is, is, you know, phenomenal because what it allows you to do is, is create more than a simple drink at home. You know, the, the, the reality is that if you ask, you know, spirits companies, and, and I was guilty for God knows how, how many years, so I'm not going to say I was innocent here, um, but spirits companies are endlessly telling you to create these very complex cocktails at home. You know, do this, a dash of this, some simple syrup, some bar, some agave nectar, some, um, you know, um, a dash of Saint-Germain, maybe a bit of this, a bit of that. And you're up to sort of five or six ingredients. And of course, you know, your average consumer, you know, uh, by the way, I, I include myself in this, you know, you start pouring in something and, you know, I got too much of that. and Oh, dear, yeah, that's really horrible now because I really stuffed that, that up. And you realize just how damn difficult it is to make a decent cocktail. It's why you go out to an entree. Of course, you yes. Know, you want a good Negroni, don't come to my house. Go to a bar. Right. You know, I always say that too. Go to a bar. <laughs> you know, so, so people at home don't make complex drinks and yet sports companies endlessly are trying to sell people complex drinks at home people don't have you know endless sprigs of rosemary and thyme and whatever but fever tree has already done that work for you you know in our aromatic tonic you've got you know angostura bark and pimento berry wow now you would never know how much angostura bark or pimento berry to put in your own drink we've done it for you you know we've got lemon thyme and rosemary in our mediterranean tonic mm -hmm. nobody's going to know how to mix lemon thyme and rosemary essences into a drink and nobody's got the time to because you come to somebody's house and what do you get offered you get offered a beer glass of wine or a spirit right. and and so a spirit has to be simple spirit mixer garnish and hopefully they know how to do ice, which in America actually people do. People in Britain are not quite so good at the ice thing. You get one little lump of ice. It's, it's getting better. It's getting better. But it used to be that one lump of ice that would just fall apart. But, you know, that is what, but that's what people do at home. So, okay, you can come to my house. Yeah, I'll give you a gin and tonic. I'll give you a whiskey and ginger. I'll give you a, you know, Paloma. I can do that because it's tequila and grapefruit, I can do it because it's gin and it's tonic. Right. And I've got a great friend of mine in the city who loves the Mediterranean tonic and serves it endlessly at his house. And um, he always makes the cocktails in the kitchen because he comes up and says, yeah, this is my special recipe. <laughs> but he'd been convincing his friends for months that it was something special. You're like, no, it's fever tree. It's yeah, fever, fever tree. tree. Yeah. But now he's, now he's sort of, he's, he's been found out, so he's stopped hiding it now. Uh -huh. Now, I don't usually ask this, but since you've had such a long career and so many interesting things, um, looking back at, you know, the young lad who just gave up his commission with skiing, um, could you ever have imagined that you have gotten and traveled and done so much? Um, and do you feel that you, well, succeeded in what you thought you might achieve so far? I, 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 oh, thank you for, thank you for saying that. Thank you for that compliment. But um, I always knew I was going to have a lot of fun. Um, and I always knew that I was going to, you know, I've, I've had various sort of, I have various mantras, but one of them was I'm sort of globally mobile. So, and, and if I hadn't been globally mobile, you know, if I'd said I only want to live in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, I would never have gone to Poland. And if I hadn't gone to Poland, I would probably never have gone to Australia. And if I hadn't gone to Australia, I wouldn't have met my wife. And if I hadn't met my wife, I wouldn't have two crazy kids. And if, you know, and if I hadn't had my wife, we wouldn't probably have moved 
Belvedere from London to New York because I'd be stupid enough to keep on jumping on the train to Paris every day and off to Poland. And she was the one who said, well, why are we here when, when you're never mm-hmm. here? Um, so I kind of, I, I, you know, and, and then I, I've, I've always been open to new opportunity. I think, I think that's the thing is, is that's what excites me. I've got a, you know, I talk about, I talk with my team a lot about having incessant curiosity about new things. And I think, you know, that's what keeps me young. That's what keeps me fresh. That's what keeps me vibrant is this idea of, you know, incessantly being incessantly curious about what people are doing and why they're doing it and how we should, you know, how can we affect change to make this happen? And, and I, I do, I mean, I, I'm, I have the privilege of, of, of working with a really young dynamic team. I've had the privilege of, of meeting a number of great people, but I've sort of mentioned my two greatest mentors, you know, the one at Mert Hennessy Australia and, and the one at um, uh, uh, Mert Hennessy Europe. So James, James and Rob. And, and then prior to that, I, I had a, you know, a crazy Australian chap who was a, a great man in Poland who sort of took me under his wing and, 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 you know, I've always had, I've always had the privilege of kind of meeting those types of people or, or found them along the way. And, you know, I've loved what I've done. I've loved every minute of it. And, but, you know, I'm still, I think I'm still the same guy that left the army age 25, 26. And uh, a sort of, I still, I still look at myself occasionally as a sort of young, restless man. And and I have to be reminded that I'm 55 years old. And and actually my kids are the ones who should be young and restless. But, and that's because I, I, you know, I do, I thrive off that energy. I mean, I, I, you know, I love staying fit. I love, um, you know, uh, I play golf. You know, I love it. And I try to be competitive. I'm not as competitive as I used to be, but I try to be. And I love bike riding. So I go off and do these massive bike rides because all these things, you know, and, and my best friend from my time in the army is still my best friend in the world. And, you know, when I see him, it's, it's you know, straight back down to earth as a normal, you know, um, yeah, I mean, just just is the first person I call when I've got a problem, and 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 the first person I call when I want to celebrate. Um, so I, th- I, you know, I never imagined. I didn't have a plan. I suppose that was the thing. I didn't have a plan, but I, but I had a kind of. I've stayed true to what I think I'm good at. I think I'm, you know, and, and you know, you can always. I, you know, I believe I'm a, 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 a very strong, very good leader of people. I believe that. I, 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 I love it. I enjoy it. I'll take on any challenge with people. I find, you know, um, the situation that we're all in at the moment has been extraordinarily challenging, but I think it's been a real test of leadership on many, many, many levels. Um, and, and the other thing I do is I love starting things. So I love... You know, I loved my time, and I, I kind of recognized that really the first time when I went to Poland in the early 90s. I loved, I loved that whole idea of startup. So, so, and it's why, you know, if, if you know, a, a big multinational giant came knocking at my door and said, Walton, you go, I go, no, go away. That's not what I enjoy doing, and I'm only going to do things I enjoy doing. And I also, you know, one of the other great things about Fever Tree is, is, um, this culture of this this can-do cult culture, and, and I think the challenge with big big business at times is you get into so much of big business ends up as being politics and politicking and people politicking endlessly, and you know a lot of the times your enemies are actually on the inside, not on the outside of the company. Whereas bizarre, you know, at Fever Tree, that's just not the case. You know, we've got a brilliant uh, you know global leadership team. We've got a you know. And I respect Tim, you know, the founder, again, immensely. You know, the first few weeks of COVID, he came out and said, we are not going to furlough anybody. Mm. Imagine the confidence that gave to his entire workforce, entire workforce. Mm -hmm. Everybody just went, wow, I don't have to look over my back. I don't have to look over my shoulder anymore. You know? It's wonderful. That's wonderful. That is so mm-hmm. good. And it kind of, it meant that people, and again, particularly living in America where, you know, people got furloughed instantly. Um, people lost their healthcare benefits instantly, um, you know, when they got furloughed in many, many, many cases. 
And Tim basically said, we're not furloughing. No, we're a growth business. We're a growth brand. We're going to invest. We're going to keep our people. They're going to work. We want them to work. They're going to be doing stuff, but we're keeping our people. And, and you know, the respect he's earned from, from that simple action has elevated the way I and the way all the employees, particularly the American ones, where, you know, there is this employment at will thing, um, ele ele elevated that to a completely different level. Well, I can't wait. Number one, I love seeing what you're doing now. And I can't wait to see what you do next, because I'm sure there will be something. So will you come back the next time you're doing, you're starting something new and chat to well, me about I that? I'm, I, well, I, I, it's going to be a lot more fe fevertry, that's for damn sure. Listen, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. It has been so amazing to get to know you and to hear your journey. And um, I can't wait to share it with, with everyone out there. Well, thank you. I've I've loved chatting to you. Big walk down memory lane. That's for yeah. <laughs> it's been really enjoyable, and and, and thank you so much um, for the opportunity to to talk. So, really enjoyed it. You know, I couldn't leave Charles without asking for his top tips for the home bartender, and where he could have a drink right now. Can you give me some tips for the home bartender? Um, <laughs> first tip: mix with the best. Um. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> there you go. No, the, I think the tips for the home bartender is 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 um, be prepared to experiment. Um, you know, I've been experimenting. I mean, God, life COVID's been a fantastic opportunity to experiment at home. Um, but you know, things I've been experimenting with. You know, I I was um, I was enjoying a Paloma the other night, and uh, we were running out of grapefruit, so I threw some ginger beer in with the with the pink grapefruit. And I made this sort of spicy Paloma. That's now become my new go-to drink at home, sort of Patron te tequila with um, a bit of sparkling pink grapefruit and then a bit of the light ginger beer is a delicious, refreshing, you know, um, light drink. Um, I think, you know, trying, you know, trying different, I mean, ah, God alive, um, it was my wife's birthday yesterday. So we had dinner last night and I had a maker's mark and a spiced orange ginger ale. And that was just delicious because orange and ginger just go so well together. And maker's mark is such a beautiful brand and an amazing expression. Um, but I think, you know, be prepared. You know, the risk is that because we are, we lack confidence when we're doing drinks at home is we don't experiment. And I think, you know, experiment on yourself and your family, um, you know, providing them, of course, of legal drinking age. Um, so experiment at home um, and then, and then, you know, tr try out your friends with them because genuinely, you know, the thing about what we do and what, you know, this industry is all about, it's about the times when we want to relax. It's about the times that we want to celebrate. And the drink is such an important part of that. It's integral to the occasion. You know, whether you're just having a drink with your partner or whether you're, you know, with a whole group of friends. And that first drink of the night is the most important drink that you have because it's the only one that you stop and you take a sip and you appreciate. Mm -hmm. After that, everything is consumption, really. But that first drink is just so meaningful. So make it a good one. And, and, and genuinely treat your, treat your mixers the way you treat your spirits would be my other advice for the home bartender. And play around with garnishes because garnishes do make a big difference, you know, in a, in a drink. And don't bloody use small ice cubes because they really do destroy. They dilute and they weaken and they make a horrible drink. I've got ones the size near, near sort of between a golf ball and a tennis ball, you know, in terms of the big, great big, Ice balls. I know. I've got those too. I love them. Love them. Fabulous. Love them. Now, if you could drink anywhere right now, where would that be? Um, you know, I, I, if, if I could drink anywhere right now, it would be in a pub in Edinburgh with my best friend and my dad. Um, and just, 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 be somewhere that's at, you know, sort of at home, but not in a house. I think we've all done that. Today. 
And, you know, we've all got a homing pigeon in us. And as I told you at the beginning, you cut me open, I bleed Scottish. And, you know, I would be in a bar in Edinburgh um, and I would be there with my best friend, my, my, my dad, ideally my son, but he's a bit too young at the moment. And we'd be off to watch Scotland play rugby and hopefully win. Um, and and that, would be my, that would be a dream. And that feels like a very long way away at the moment, you know, just in the mm. world that we're in. And, and, you know, the one thing about being, and I'm sure you feel the same, expatriated, sort of not in your home country is, is dare I say, if something was to go, you know, wrong, you are a very long way from home at the moment. Whereas in, in, in the normal modern world, you're a six hour plane flight and you're home. Uh, now you are, you're not, and you're, and we're all somewhat isolated, and particularly those people who are sort of expatriated, not at home, and that you know weighs on us. I think at this time, both myself and my wife, you know, whose parents obviously in Australia, which is even further away and um, more impossible to access. All right, so I see you at that pub in Edinburgh. His answer proved you can take the Scot out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out of the Scot. To switch gears completely, our Cocktail of the Week takes us right to sunny Mexico. Thank goodness grapefruit soda is starting to have its heyday. I start every day with a half of this bitter citrus fruit full of potassium and vitamin C. Fever Tree now has its own sparkling pink grapefruit soda, making it so much easier to make our cocktail of the week, the sparkling Paloma. Just add 50 mils of Altos tequila to a highball glass, add ice, and top with 150 mils or more of Fever Tree sparkling pink grapefruit. Garnish with a juicy pink grapefruit wedge and turn your face to the sun. You'll find this recipe, plus all the cocktails of the week, at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find all the ingredients in our shop. Is it okay to reveal that I love maraschino cherries in any form? I think people are way too snobby about them, especially the red plasticky kind. They're part of my childhood. If you live for Lush Life, make sure you're giving back to the bars you love by donating or taking part in cocktail delivery where you live or visiting one now that they're open. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly and wash your hands and wear a mask. Next time, our guest is making an admission to celebrate one ingredient at a time. And lucky for us, he's documenting it all on his new YouTube channel. Until that time, bottoms up. Bottoms up.